If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From Bernard Montgomery to George Patton and Omar Bradley, the Second World War produced some of the most celebrated commanders in modern military history. But how did these leaders react to the Allies' early defeats? And how did they evolve their tactics to turn their armies into war-winning machines? Al Murray, comedian, history fanatic and author of a new book on the Allied commanders, answered these questions and many more in discussion with Spencer Mizzen. So Al, you've just written a book called Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War in which you explore the lives of 10 military commanders who made significant contributions to victory in that conflict. Now, in the book's introduction, you observe that the Second World War is an endlessly peelable onion, a subject that seems to offer no boundaries. it's, It's safe to say that when writing a history of the Second World War, you're entering a pretty crowded field. So what does your book bring to the party? Why did you decide to write it? Well, why did I decide to write it? Well, it came out of, um, of doing this podcast, We Have Ways of Make You Talk, that I've been doing with James Holland for three years now, really. It came out of that and the, and the sheer amount of cud that we have been chewing in the, in the three years. And I started the podcast thinking I had a rough idea of what happened during the Second World War. And I now realise three years in, I know a vanishingly tiny amount and every time I read another book or look into another thing, I learn a load of other stuff and realise that, you know, my old and tired brain has only got room for so much. But one of the things that I think is really interesting in the story of the Second World War, um, and, and you're absolutely right, it's a completely crowded marketplace and it's full of very big beasts and it's full of uh, hard and fast opinion and quite well set Um, I'm not going to use the word myth, but like tradition in its storytelling and all that sort of stuff. One of the things that's striking about the Second World War, I think, is the Allies get off to a terrible, terrible, terrible start. Um, And and then by the end, in the other sense of the word terrible, a terrible victory, a crushing um, total victory. And how on earth does that happen in six years or really in five? Um, 
how on earth is that possible? And um, so that's the sort of, that's kind of the question. Um, and the answer people often give, well, it's because of industry and, you know, it's a war of engines, which is what Stalin says, you know, whoever builds the most engines. And he's saying that in November, something like November 1941, where the Soviet Union is on paper losing. Um, he says that then. And that's what, you know, that's been the answer, hasn't it? Been the, it's abundance that does it for the Allies and all this sort of stuff. And, and of course it does. Three economies larger than the German economy, um, you know, uh, that then pummeled into submission their enemies, all that sort of stuff. But you've still the, the thing about pummeling people in, into submission is you've still got to figure out how to do it, and then you've still got to persuade people to do it. Um, and that's the bit that I've tried to write about, and the thing that I think is really, really interesting. So I've tried to start off with why are they so hopeless to start with, and what is it that's happening by the end? What's the sin? What what's gone into into what's happening? So I start off with a general, and I end with a lieutenant. And sort of try at the end of the book to go down the chain, down the food chain, via a colonel to a lieutenant to find out what's happening. It's all very well knowing you've got to organise your men and knowing you need tanks and knowing you need the right tanks and knowing you need to figure out how to use the intelligence you've got in front of you, knowing how to mobilise people. But in the end, how are the people at the bottom of this food chain or this thing experiencing that? And so that's what what I've tried to do. Um, And the thing is... As I was writing it, I regarded the entire thing as torturous. And now, now we're at the end of it, other end of it. Some other people have read it. I'm warmer to the project than I was <laughs> when I was in the clinch of the darn thing. Well, that's good. It's better than the other way round, I, I suppose. <laughs> well, absolutely. It's usually the it's usually the other way round. And and I and I um, as a sidebar, you know, I've written comedy books before, uh, several. Um, some of which, you know, have been very well, very well received and liked by the people who are into my stuff. But this is a this is such a different animal as a way of writing. I mean, I find writing books hard anyway, because you have to sign off on them, you have to hand them over, and you have to give them up, and then people read them and go, "Well, this isn't funny." Whereas with history, it's like, "Well, that's not true," or he's talking out of his hat, which is I don't mind people saying I'm not funny, because that's. That's that's the first thing you learn as a comedian. You can't make everyone laugh. But history, you know, I mean, it's, and you know, and, I'm, and this is popular history as well. I'm no, I'm no way am I an academic historian. It's the fact that the stakes are so low and all that sort of stuff that um, that, that 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 I, I kind of I'm very nervous about this book. I have to say, I was going to ask you that actually because obviously you're you're best known as a as a comedian, someone who's made a career out of making people laugh. However, I mean, th- this book deals with some of the bleakest bloodiest episodes in human history so I mean, how, how did you find that transition between these, these two two different positions well well um really 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 difficult but but like i say with the podcast i've sort of been eased into i've sort of been it, it felt like at some point i was going to have to try and write a book like this i'm fascinated by popular history and i'm 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 fascinated by the water that popular history swims in and I'm also very interested in that, you know, the porous boundary between... Because you, you very often see... If you, I mean, I'm very much into my Twitter and social media. You very often see a historian pipe up on Twitter and go, historian here, you've actually got this all wrong. And you think, well, yeah, maybe, but people need to think very hard about what history does once it's off reservation, once it, once it escapes academe and gets into the gets into the sort of... into the cultural m- mainstream. That's where... That's actually where I think history exists and thrives and changes and mutates far more than in far more than in a university where the people are saying they disagree with each other but they agree on the terms of 
they at least agree on the terms of engagement and the way they argue. Whereas, whereas in the outside world, you know, I mean, just a simple thing like the Battle of Britain, you know, <laughs> which is the most extraordinary. You know, uh, when you compare what people are writing about it now, when you compare to what people wrote about it in the 50s and 60s and 70s and the films and the way that the the war is sort of... Because it happened to everyone, it exists in culture in a way that the Reformation doesn't, perhaps. You know, and that's the thing I find... And I've done a lot of that in my comedy, actually, because the pub landlord half knows a load of history um, and, you know, knows who Henry VIII's wives are, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I... You know, I thought what was instructive about the um, pandemic was that when it began, everyone was talking about comparing it to the Second World War. And I think the reason was is because they couldn't compare it to the Tudors, which are the two things that exist in popular history. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Is this World War Two, Henry VIII, and we can't really compare COVID-19 to Anne Boleyn, so <laughs> we're going to have to... Second World War it is. <laughs> Second World War it is, exactly. Because Brexit got compared to Henry VIII and the Reformation, you know, like... Break with Rome is the break with Europe. Well, all right, if you want, but isn't it more like, isn't it more like the Corn Laws in the way that it's dividing the Conservative Party? You know, you know what I mean. And I just think I'm fascinated by where history sort of this sort of vague space that it, history enters um, in culture. And so I felt at some point I was going to have to write a popular history book. And what I want, you know, that's why I've taken on this story of allies do terribly and allies win in the end because one of the i and allies win in the end by getting really 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 good at fighting rather than the kind of oh they we muddled through and we did it by preponderance which i don't actually believe i don't think because the the americans then go and fight the vietnam war with preponderance and lose lose badly you know um so how how you, you can't explain it with the one ex, the, the one explanation doesn't work doesn't fit i think in my humble opinion now, in this book, you profile British commanders, American commanders, there's a New Zealander in there, and you've got like military titans such as Bernard Montgomery and George S. Patton, but you've also got less celebrated figures such as Francis Tucker. I mean, so what was your criteria here? How did you arrive upon these particular 10 commanders? Well, th th they're all supposed to be located in the narrative at point at stages in the war. So the stuff about M Montgomery is is it's before he becomes Monty. That's the thing I've really tried to do. He was he, you know, a lot of ink's been spilt about him by Alamed by the time he becomes commander of Eighth Army, and then by the time he becomes um, you know land forces commander, Second Army Group. Uh, well, in fact, he you know he's in charge of the Normandy invasion, in charge of Overlord, the land component, and then and, and all that, and all the mistakes he made in 1944, 45, and you know, and all, but 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 who he is and where he where he sits in. 1940, when the British undergo their biggest military disaster, aside from Singapore, you know, when they're, when they're completely outfought and outfought by the Germans in 1940, where does he fit into that story? And so, so, so I thought there's a thing that happens to him in 1939 that I think is illustrative of the attitude in the army and in the British setup that leads to what a lot of what happens in 1940 when they're defeated. Um, without being too determinist about it, so I thought, well, I want to write about someone people know about, but I want to put him. I want to put him somewhere else in the story. I don't want him in the story where he's cracked the code and he knows how to beat the Germans. I want him. Where does he fit before he gets there? How seriously is he taken by the the, the organisation he's given his life to? You know, and and the answer is not particularly. You know, at one point, a lot of that is tied up with his character, but also the character of that organisation that that's got itself in a right old pickle about all sorts of things that. Really, when you think about it, um, they're being remarkably stupid. And, and 
And yet you also have to place what happens in that context. And it's to do with, you know, he writes a letter about venereal disease to his men and he uses the expression horizontal of refreshment. And the, 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 the Roman Catholic chaplain, the chief chaplain of, of the BEF, tried to get him fired. And that would have been the end. There would have been no Monty on offer in 1942 to command Eighth Army if that had happened. He'd have been given the flick and sent to train and never, never got on trained for his career if those people had got their way. And he's a very he's he regards himself as a super professional soldier and he's dr- drilling his men, he's training them, and he thinks that they haven't got the kit they need and and he knows that he thinks he's on a hiding to nothing and he's pointing at the moon really and they're looking at his finger and I think I think that's that's why I chose him because he illustrates that moment. And then Francis Tuca is very, very interesting because he is a forgot. He is genuinely someone who sort of slips through the cracks. He was a divisional commander in North Africa, in Italy, of, a, of an Indian Army division. So he was a professional soldier um, with the professional bit of the Indian Army. Like So he, was, he wasn't using conscripted men like um, a British general was, British Army general was. He was using people who'd signed up because the Indian Army was all volunteers. And so he was used to people doing what he wanted them to do generally. So he had a very, very low opinion of what was going on in North Africa and had all sorts of theories about it, that, that about what needed to be done and where they were going wrong, wrong in North Africa. And he regarded himself as an intellectual of warfare, that he had the ideas and that everyone had forgotten the fundamental principles. But what's interesting is whenever he writes about the desert, he always comes back to the equipment and goes, the equipment's crap. And he's right. And again, he's... He is pointing at the moon and he's looking at his finger. He's like, he he knows the answer, but he can't admit it because he wants to say, but in the end, it's about how we conduct this war rather than the fact that men need to trust the equipment and the equipment needs to do the job we need it to do. And he keeps sort of stating that and saying, but anyway, that's not the point. We need to be more like Genghis Khan in the way we envisage movement. And that chat was useless and he was hopeless and all that. And it's very interesting because he's he's almost... He's like, in 1942, during the Gazala Line battle, he is, he's right about what's going wrong, but he's not right about necessarily, or he can't see that he's right about the solution. And that's really interesting that there's this sort of intellectual fugue going on in the army, even in its cleverest, most figured out people. Um, and that's why I chose him, because he's very interesting. And he wrote copiously about his theories of warfare. And he was a real student of the art of war, wasn't he? Absolutely. He wrote a book called Pattern of War, which is like his sort of grand history of the history of war and what's going to come with nuclear war and all this. And tried to self set himself up post-war as a sort of theoretician, which is very, very interesting because, you know, there are professional soldiers and then there are army intellectuals and they're very, they're very different people. You know, they're, they're a different, they're a, a different order of people. And, and, you know, What's good about him is he's outspoken, so he gives you something to chew on. So he's an observer, and at one point he's sent to go and have a look at what's going on. So he's coming at it like slightly detached. I think he's worth looking at because he's sort of doing the thinking that the army needs to be doing, and he's doing it out loud, and that's really interesting, you know. To return to to Monty, he's he's someone you you clearly admire. He's got a bit of a mixed reputation, hasn't he? not only he's got a reputation as a brilliant commander, but also is I think as you put it, as a preening showman, maybe something of a pop in Jay. I mean, but do you think he's unfairly maligned? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The thing is, is after the war, what happened is he became chief of the Imperial General Staff, and the army because he because he'd brought victory, run the army in north in, in northwest Europe. The army then, British army entered the Monty Mould and you were in or you were out. If he thought you were no good, he'd tell you no good, and he made an awful lot of enemies. And then I think what happens kind of culturally is he becomes he becomes the guy 
war is a terrible thing. We had to do terrible things to win. And he sort of becomes the lightning rod for that. A cultural sort of way of digesting the terrible things that we had to go through and that men were made to do and that men had to do in order to, in order to bring about victory against, against an, a disgusting foe. And I think, I think he has a little bit of, you know, Bomber Harris gets it far worse, but there's a bit of that. Look at the stuff you, you know, we don't need you anymore. War's over. We don't need you anymore. We don't care what you think anymore. And, th- and so long and goodbye. And I think that kind of happens to him. And I think that, unfortunately, is inevitably the fate of the great captains. And, and, in, and in a way, that ought to happen. This, what's interesting about the Second World War is because is, 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 is it's a civilian army. It's a conscription army. It's regular people. It's a genuine, massive intrusion into people's lives. And so if afterwards people don't like the people that did that to them, I, can't, I, I get it. I, I sort of get it. But I don't care that he's vain. I don't care that he's difficult to people because he, he, he is the guy who absolutely electrifies things one way or another. And he, there's an awful lot of right place, right time. But it's, it's his arrival with, with Alexander in the desert in, in 1942 where they announce there will be no withdrawal and they throw down the gauntlet really to their own men to win. And he's a transformative figure. And, and I think, you know, and as a result, made a load of enemies and sacked lots of people he thought were crap. And whether, you know, I don't know whether all the people he sacked for being crap were the right people to have sacked. He made, yes, he made an awful lot of tough decisions and, and, and pissed a lot of people off. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I sort of, what else is he supposed to have done? And there are other people who are more, who are more emollient. Um, and Alexander's regarded as a sort of the emollient guy and a really good coalition general. And Monty's bad at the coalition stuff, but that's because Monty's in Northwest Europe. He's closest to London. He's dealing with, you know, especially in September of 44, into the autumn, he's dealing with the V2 thing and the government breathing down his neck going, why aren't you doing something about this? He's got other, he's, the political realities of the peace that are coming um, are much more on his mind. And he's much more the tool of the British government to bring that about. So, of course, he's pissing the Americans off, you know, and, and an awful lot of that comes from there. And they'd rather, you know, a lot of the bad Monty press comes from the American generals fight like racks in a sack with each other anyway. And then, you know, this, this funny little priggish man comes along and they're able to fight with him as well. Speaking of Americans, I'm going to, um, if it's OK, read a couple of sentences from your book back to you. You write, he's huge, he's a totem, a self-created archetype, He's his own gold standard. He's a movie star. But again, he's more than that. The man you're uh, describing there is George S. Patton. What made him such a colossal figure in the Second World War? He did. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the remarkable thing about George Patton, because I've got him and Bradley as the two Americans in the book, and I think what's so interesting about them is is Patton is an an American aristocrat. He is... ancestors fought in the uh, civil war on the side of the confederacy he he casts himself as a warrior from when he's a child he he wants to be hannibal he sees himself in that mold he really re- and he genuinely does and imagines himself to be that and that's why he joins the army and that's why when um uh, he's told to go buy horses for the us cavalry he gives it the slip and gets himself another job fighting and and in the 20s and 30s, he's agitating like mad to be at the forefront of everything. He's it, So by the time the sort of burnished pattern comes along, 
It's he's his own creation. He's extraordinary. Whereas Bradley is made in the army, literally made by the army. He's from a dirt poor family. He gets a scholarship. He goes to West Point. He's in the same class as, as Eisenhower and all sorts of other big, big generals. And he is made by the army. Uh, he finds his values in the army. He finds himself in the army. He finds everything to do for himself and for the army in a life of service. And so when he's when he's told to go guard, guard coal mines in um, uh, Nebraska or somewhere, he goes. He does as he's told. He doesn't give it the slip and say, I'm not doing that. That sounds boring. And 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 what's so interesting about Patton is that the US Army, because it goes from being tiny to being enormous, they need personalities. They need they need people crashing around, making a name for themselves as a, in a sort of showy style of a lead, leader. And, and, and what's interesting here is these are all criticisms of Montgomery. These are things that are thrown at Monty, that he's priggish, he's, that he's preening, that he's a popinjay, that he's a showman. And they're seen as positives in pattern by a lot of people. And so I often find that, you know, if what's good for the goose, surely. But Patton is an extraordinary figure. And um, one of the one of the things is he was really, really good at generating copy. He was brilliant talking to the press pack. He was absolutely fantastic at it. And he'd he'd do the whole uh, this bit's off the record, boys. But you can you know um, this is what's going on. And then he go, but you can quote me on this. And he and he was really, really good at copy. And his diaries are full of the stuff he was saying to st- people and him formulating the formulating his attitudes, put piecing them together for presentation because. He really genuinely wanted to be Hannibal, which is very, very interesting because, you know, surely war is a serious business for sort of serious technocratic types. And certainly the Second World War, again, is presented as a technocratic war. And yet here you have this massive larger than life figure um, crashing about making a name for himself. And he was really good. And he was really good at his job as well as the other thing. That's the other thing. He was really, really good at his job. So, you know. Now, there was a darker side to him, wasn't there? I mean, as you describe in the book, he, he hit men who were, seemed to be suffering from combat stress, called them yellow sons of bitches and threatened to have them shot. I mean, how did that go down with his contemporaries? He does slap men and he does think they're guilty of, of cowardice, but there's all sorts of subtle things going on in that. It's that the US Army had been screening people and was pretty convinced it had weed out, weeded out who it thought would suffer from combat fatigue. Whereas, in fact, you know, what, what, what was being discovered is that there's no way of knowing who can cope and there's no way of knowing how much anyone can cope with. And in the end, eventually, most people, pretty much everybody apart from psychopaths, crack, right? And uh, But they had the, the US Army had reassured itself in its selection and rejected an awful lot of people for being psychologically unsuitable. So maybe when he was doing that, he was acting in a peculiar way in good faith that he'd been told, you know, and he knew he would have known all about this. These people, you, these people who are in, the, in, you know, in your army, are up to the job and are the right people, and have been we've weeded out. So anyone who's, you know, says they uh, can't cope is a coward, um, in, in a sort of classical sense. You know, I, I can't do it, boss. Rather than they're undergoing psychological detachment and disassociation, all the, all the, all the sort of the sort of cascade of things that start to go to wrong for people when they have combat fatigue. So in a way, maybe. You can you can see it in that context. But a lot of people thought he was right. <laughs> you know, a lot of people below him thought he was right. A lot of people, a lot of his people in his peer group thought he was right. The, the American Army and US Marine Corps underwent an extremely rude awakening when they actually got into the fighting in, um, especially in the Pacific, where suddenly they were dealing with lots and lots of people with combat fatigue. 
or battle stress or and the, and of course the name is a mo- the name itself is a moving target keeps changing and and the definitions would change and what, one of the interesting things is as the definition changed the symptoms would change people would exhibit different symptoms to match the definitions really interestingly so if combat blindness became a thing people talked about the guys who go blind you know um and it's all so difficult all this to delineate and quantify and and measure and all that sort of stuff and also psychiatry at the time was in the, was in the grip of a Freudian notion that, you know, if, if you were having trouble on the battlefield, it's because reminding you of something bad in your childhood, whereas rather than it's, it's people trying to kill you, you know, like, or, or, or the relentless sound of explosions that are sent in your direction. You know, so, so there's all these th- sort of jumbly things in the mix. So, I mean, some people thought it was disgraceful and he was at, you know, he was, it was journalists who revealed he'd done this. They'd been, they'd been told they weren't allowed to write about it. They did write about it. So he was, he was busted in that respect. And, People were more annoyed that he that it had sort of escaped, and, but but in the end, there's a sort of acceptance in the Allied uh, High Command that his value as a man of push and go general is much more important than the, the fact that he's a loose cannon. And that's in the book at that point where the Allies are about to enter the last phase of the war, and they've got all right, no pussyfooting. We need the people who can win this, and they need to be in the right places at the right time in the right jobs. And that's what that's where that's what happens to Patton is they go. We need the guy. We need the guy. And the Second World War present, you know, the, the last year of the Second World War in Northwest Europe is absolute destruction and mayhem because they've got people who are good at that. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Well, I think self-belief is a big a big part of it because no one will believe in you if you don't believe in yourself, I think is the... Is the is the sort of the, the strand the strand that really runs through all these people, you know, and, and the pinnacle of self-belief in all of that is Ord Wingate. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, Patton and Montgomery were from different countries and from different military traditions. How did the American and British military traditions and those contrasting traditions and their contrasting officer training programmes, how did that impact on the style of leadership of the two different nations? Well, uh, enormously. So the the British have this uh, problem um, and that's also also arguably a strength, which is because the British are running an an empire, they have a very devolved um, uh, doctrinal tradition. So, which is to say, generally, how you're trained is figured out when you arrive where you're going, because you could be sent to Malta to do garrison duty, you could be going anywhere in the world, basically. And so there's no point having centralised, the the, the thinking is, there's no point having centralised drills for stuff. There's no point in having a centralised way of doing it, a uniform way of doing it, because everywhere you go, everything will will be different. So in that respect, the idea is, therefore, the British Army is very good at evolving a central, evolving doctrines for the environments it arrives in. But that also tends to mean they get off to a terrible start. (laughs) 
you know. So France in 1940 is an example of, oh, oh, right, okay, they're going to they're gonna do it this way. The Germans are going to do it like this, are they? Okay, fine. And then in North Africa, oh, right, okay, well, we're, we can fight the Italians, and but um, that doesn't work with the Germans. Oh, no, we're going to have to figure that. And in Singapore, fighting the Japanese, and in Burma in particular. And Burma's the, you know, I write about Slim and Wingate in the book. Burma's the place where, and that's the Indian army, really, that fight that. But they're, they're, they're subject to the same British approach, which is, well, we'll figure out how to win this battle once we know what it is. And w- once we've figured out where we are and what the prior, you know, how to win it. The British, so the British have this kind of core, core flexibility that leaves them vulnerable, but then in the end, arguably makes them very good at finding solutions to different battlefields. Once it's all shaken, that's all shaken down. And also once you've got lots of um, uh, people who aren't professional soldiers involved, who aren't wedded to their army careers and saying the wrong thing and all that sort of, you know, worried about saying the wrong thing. The Americans, their army completely shrinks after the First World War. Its job is imperial policing in the Philippines, which everyone always forgets about, um, is that the Americans do have an empire and it's uh, and it's in the Philippines, and then fighting the Mexicans. That's basically its job. And so it shrinks to this tiny cadre. So when it, when it then expands again, their their officer training is centralised. And in fact, Brad, it's Bradley who's brought in, uh, uh, given the job of revolutionising officer training. It's it's him. He's given it to reform at Fort Bragg. And that's the difference is the Americans kind of essentially have a centralised approach to um, uh, uh, to how they're going to train everybody train their people, even though they're going to different theatres. And then in the different theatres, they then have to figure out in the theatres what they're going to do. So what you've got is a much more devolved thing going on in in in, in the British system. And the American one is more centralised. And so tends to tends to produce, and this is a, this is a big generalisation, but tends to produce a more, a, a, a more a, arguably a more coherent way of doing things, which the, the, the British system lacks. Speaking of the British system, I mean, to what extent do you think it was hamstrung by the fact that most officers were taken from public from public school background, especially at the beginning of the war? Well, the thing is, is that I mean, you know, there's a strong argument that that seeing as public school is trying to produce officers, <laughs> that it's tr- trying to serve that need, that. You could argue at the time and the place that's that, that's advantageous that it's drawing from from that. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously such class delineations are things that we we hold our nose when we talk about them. We don't like them, but at the time, I mean, what's interesting is when the war comes. Of course, that all falls apart because there's just not enough people, and some of them are they may well have gone to the right school, but they're dimwits, or or they're or it turns out they're just not very good at it because not everyone's good at running a platoon and then going up to company and then going up to battalion and up to brigade or whatever. You know, there's just not enough people. And the army basically has to broaden its standards in terms of class, but then also raise its standards in terms of who it's recruiting for officers. And the two two happen together. But, yeah, I mean, public school, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's not one on the playing fields of Eton or any of that. Or any of that stuff, but it's very much it very much informs Britain's entry to the war, and everyone you know everyone knows everyone else. That there's a really brilliant description by um, George Chatterton, who's um, the commander of the glider pilot regiment, who flew General Browning to Arnhem in September 1944, and he goes to the he goes to the O group, um, the orders group, where they're figuring out how to get across the river, um, the the Wall at Nijmegen, where they do the they do the river crossing in boats. The Americans do river crossing in boats, and there's the American generals sort of 
with their cigars spitting in spitting and and all this and who are super pro american generals and then there's a wickhamist an old etonian someone who went to st paul's and they're all st- and they're all in their different style all of obviously if and also with their different guards regiments or whatever thrown into the mix stood around having an oh, I say old chap conversation and all they all know uh, uh, you know it, i mean the thing is is if, if the british and the americans have got um differences between them culturally the british have got their own sort of crenellations within those <laughs> you know never really trust a wickhamist and all that sort all that sort of stuff going on as well um which i think which i think is very interesting and and you know the army still does very much draw its officers from public schools. I mean, you know, these these traditions, especially in peacetime, they, they tend to be reverted to and are very hard to shake. Now, I'd like to turn next to one of the lesser-known subjects of, of your book, and that's Second Lieutenant Peter White. Um, you describe him as an artist and religious to the point of pacifism. So how does a man like that end up in a book on great commanders? He is such an interesting commander precisely for that reason, because he's an artist, because he's a pacifist. And he wrote an amazing account um, uh, of the last year of the war called With the Jocks, because he was in 52nd Lowland Division. He was in 4th King's Own Scottish Borderers. He was a platoon commander. So we've gone from the general making these big decisions to the guy who's got to make sure his men don't move about too much in their positions because they'll attract enemy fire. He's the bloke who's put a guy on a charge... And the guy's killed the next day and he has to live with that. He's the guy who's dealing with, you know, telling his men they're going into a wood now. They're probably going to be ambushed. Um, uh, Spread out, please. He's the guy living the risks that the people further up in the book are quantifying and and sort of figuring out and trying to, you know, he's the guy that these other people are trying to motivate. So he's really at the cold face then, basically. He's absolutely one, yeah. I mean, he's, he, um, uh, in, the, in the early draft, my editor kept, my editor said, you've used the word sharp end much too much in this chapter. Like, All right, okay. Like, but, but, but he sort really of, was. <laughs> he really was. There's no other way of describing it. And he, and he describes the squalor of it and of living, you know, because you live outdoors and, 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 and basically they, they land, in Walcheren in the autumn of 44 and then and then fight all the way to the end of the war. So he gets to Bremen and, and to the surrender. And he moves through um, uh, Germany mainly. It's mainly a story of fighting your way through Germany, through a defeated Germany, through a Germany where the defeat is dawning on them, on the population, but the army isn't giving up. Um, and this that extraordinary tension and a Germany full of displaced people. They'll take over a farmhouse, a compound. The platoon will sleep down, sleep, in the in the farmhouse, they'll they'll move the family into the barn. They'll be the you know Polish pressed worker, the ger- the Russian pressed worker who obviously all hate the people they've been forced to work for, and the uh, and that there's an awful lot of that in the book of of what on earth that situation's like, and and a load of also a load of load of filthy infantrymen, tight exhausted infantrymen turning up and basically eating all your livestock and you know and the and the that part of living the war and keeping your men going and looking after them and making sure they're eating properly and making sure they're of sound mind. And there's a really fascinating bit where he's got a guy who always runs off. He's got one guy in the platoon who he knows is going to basically sort of end up tying his shoelaces or, you know, doing something else. And White's way of dealing with it is, fine, I'll let him go now. Because the last thing I want is him running away in an hour's time when we're really in deep deep in an attack, and he lets me down. And White has the compassion 
you know, because a lot of people will go, well, you know, go sod you. You know, you you put him on a charge, you report them, you don't even shipped out. But he needs him for cooking, and he needs him for cohesion, and and he needs to he needs to show his men in a way that he cares about them, and that he cares about them in human terms. Because after all, they're all fed up with it. They've all had enough. They're all sick of being in daily mortal danger, and. White's fascinating because they cross they cross start lines every other day, basically for for um, nine months essentially, and he keeps himself going and he keeps his men going, and that's why he's in the book because it's easy to talk about pattern making speeches to motivate people, and it's easy to t- write about Bradley's connection with um, uh, civilian life because of because of his, the work he did before the war, and it's easy to talk about you know Tuca's intellectual understanding of how this all works, but a guy who's actually doing it on the front line, fixing bayonets. You know, there's a, in his book, there's an extraordinary account of when they run into an SS cadet school and, the, and it's 15-year-olds and they won't give up. And he's thinking, and that's in like April 1945, he's thinking, what are you, why are you doing this? And he's still got to mobilise his men to deal with these people. He's basically making enormous on-the-spot life and death decisions every single day. Every single day. And the life and death decisions are, are also not necessarily move the machine gun to there and we'll flank round here. That, that it is stuff like he, he's always he's always he's always complaining that when they arrive in when they relieve another regiment or relieve another company or whatever, they come into the positions and they're a mess and they're dirty and that's so that's a hygiene problem and the men will get sick. And he's worried that the people before have been moving around too much, so have given away where they are. And that affects his men. He's worrying about all that stuff all the time. And that's what that's why he's in the book. Because the war put people, you know, because he's a conscript, the war put people into pacifists into the front line by circumstance. And that that's the that's really, really interesting. And I just want to mention one final protagonist in your book, and that's Bernard Freiburg and the the debacle that was the, the battle for Crete in 1941. Because this kind of illustrates, doesn't it, the the problems that the Allies, most specifically the British Army, were facing in the, the first years of the war. I mean, you describe him as a as a born warrior, a man with with an undimmable appetite for action, an athlete, a national hero without peer. Yet he still couldn't prevent this battle ended in defeat and an evacuation. I mean, why was the British Army losing so consistently in, in this period? <laughs> and that's a big question, I know. Well, but... well, well, partly because of the thing we talked about earlier, which is that, that is that they haven't they haven't yet figured out what the enemy are doing. They they know well, or, or rather, they haven't figured out a solution. They figured out what they're doing, but they haven't figured out a solution to it yet. Also, because Germany, um, uh, <laughs> Germany was super mobilized in terms of wanting to fight a war, and so sort of has this head start of of you know more people being familiar with a rifle or whatever aren't the most basic terms but basically the british aren't picking their battles at this stage i think is a big part of it the illustrative point i always think with freiburg is he knew what was going to happen next um uh, he knew that the that uh, operation Mer- mercury mercur was going to happen he knew the germans were coming he knew that they were going to do an airborne landing he knew all about it because because the british had cracked the luftwaffe ciphers because the Luftwaffe were profligate in use of their of their using their Enigma machines, and the British had got ahead at this point and were reading their reading their codes. But even knowing that, unless you know what you're going to do, there's no. It doesn't matter what whether you know what the enemy are going to do, unless you know how to organise yourselves, unless you unless you figured out really what matters. And 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 at Crete, what really matters is one pat is a patch of high ground overlooking um, Malimi Airfield, 
I was there a couple of months ago and you stand up on the hill and you could see absolutely everything for miles around. And it's blindingly obvious that you, whatever you do, you don't give that hill up, but they give it up in the confusion because there isn't a sort of Freiburg for all his sort of born warrior thing actually kind of hasn't really addressed what the problems they're going to face are in the event of an airborne landing. And also the Germans at this point have got this kind of voodoo over the, over British uh, commanders and and to some extent the men and when an enormous parachute landing happens it's like martians it's like it's a sci-fi landing you know we're used to we used you know we go pleasure parachuting now you, you can you could book a tandem jump tomorrow right but in 1941 it's it's you know that the year before in britain there's been this enormous parachute panic um after the invasion of the lowlands in particular because the germans used parachute troops and in 1941 that magic has not worn off yet um and so poor old Freiburg, you know, yes, he's got a sort of scratch force, but he does that, you know, uh, uh, that isn't all infantrymen, but, but some of them are fairly well motivated and they fight well when, the, when, when the, a lot of them fight extremely well when, when push comes to shove. But the problem is, is he can't figure out where the push and the shove is, even though the Germans have basically told him. So, because I always think, you know, in, the Enigma story is a big part of how people view the war and sort of satisfy themselves that, well, we knew what the Germans were having for breakfast. And... Yeah, there's that kind of a mythology around it, isn't there? Exactly. But but at that point, and, and they really did know everything about what the Germans were going to do. Didn't help. Didn't matter. You know, and so you can you can bletchly park yourself all you want and Alan Turing yourself all you like. But but unless you're unless you actually know in a joined up way what you're going to do and how you do it, um, Counts, it counts for nothing. Finally, Al, if there's one thing you learned about what it took to be a successful commander in the Second World War while researching this book. Yes, it's very simple. I have none of the attributes required. <laughs> <laughs> but is there one quality or characteristic that binds all, the, all these men that you, you wrote about in your book? Well, I think self-belief is a big a big part of it because no one will believe in you if you don't believe in yourself i think is the is the is the sort of the the strand the strand that really runs through all these people you know and and the pinnacle of self-belief in all of that is ord wingate um who who believed in himself to the point where he's able to get um cleverer people than him to agree to quite harebrained things and that's sort of you know, you, you can have too much. It's one of the it's possibly where where I'm where I end up going with him. And he's a massively controversial figure, anyway. So it's, it's not really. I mean, I was writing about him, thinking, well, he's hugely controversial. This is going to upset, upset low. Is this going to upset anyone? I think, well, he's controversial anyway. Like, whatever. But but yes, I think it's it's self belief, and you know, from M- Montgomery, who's who again was regarded as having far too much, to Peter White, whose self belief. And in fact, actually, his belief—it's his faith that gets him through. He, he refers to it again and again in the book. You've got to believe it. You've got to believe in something. And he believes in—you know—he believes in, in God. He's a Christian. Believes in a higher power. Um, Patton believes in a higher power that is himself. You know, I mean, I think that's—I think that in the end is what it comes down to. That was Al Murray. His new book, Command: How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War is published by Headline and on sale now. You can also read a version of this interview in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.